This episode is brought to you by Rosetta Stone, the all-in-one language app. With Rosetta Stone, you'll have everything you need to learn a language and use it in the real world. They offer immersive lessons, writing prompts, and engaging activities to prepare you for real-life conversations. You can pick and choose the lessons that work best for you and create a personalized experience that's both fun and engaging. Get ready for life's adventures with 50% off for I Know Dino listeners at rosettastone.com dino. This episode is brought to you by the Colorado Northwestern Community College. Join them for two weeks digging up dinosaur bones from the Jurassic period in Northwest Colorado this summer. For details, go to cncc.edu slash dinodig. Hello and welcome to I Know Dino. I'm Garrett. And I'm Sabrina. This week we have Dinosaur of the Day, Amplosaurus, and a bunch of dinosaur news. But first, as always, we'd like to thank some of our Stegosaurus patrons who help us keep this podcast going. And this week we would like to thank Lucas and Eli, Wyatt, the Georges family, John Heck, Janice, Ranger Chris from Dino for Hire, Ray, Oliver E., Callum, and Andrew and Helena Webb. Yeah, thanks so much for all your support that helps us keep this podcast going. As you can see, the list is starting to fill up, so you might want to jump in and get your own shout out before we run out of spots. Yes. If you want to do that, check out our page at patreon.com slash I Oh, and just a heads up for next week, we're going to have an interview with the author of Bolivar, Sean Rubin. So if you'd like to read that book in advance so you know what we're talking about, I would recommend it. It's a graphic novel. It's what, 120 pages? It's over 200 pages. Oh yeah, I'm thinking 120 spreads because it's kind of two pages at a time since mm-hmm. it's a graphic novel. But you can read the whole thing in an hour or two. Yeah, although there's a lot to look at. It's re- yeah, it's really enjoyable. Yeah, and it's good for kids and adults. Yep. So if you want to know what we're talking about and the different drawings that are in it and things like that, at least check out the book a little bit. If not, read the whole thing, I would say. <laughs> So jumping into the news, we have a new dinosaur. Yes. And this time it's a sauropod. Yes. Not like the ankylosaur from last week. Yeah, that one's okay. (laughs) This one. Thanks to Lori for sharing with us. So this article is written by Xu Xing and a bunch of others. And it's not surprising that there are a lot of people authored on this paper. Because they all want to look at sauropods. Yes. And it was a very thorough excavation. So... Originally, a shepherd stumbled onto the fossils on a small hill with his sheep back in 2004, and this was in northwest China. And what he did was he just picked up a few of the bones and mailed them to local officials because he thought they might be fossils. And then ultimately, after about a year, they made their way to Shuxing, and he said, oh, this, this looks like it might be an incredibly important dinosaur. We should send someone over there. So one person went over <laughs> there and checked it out and discovered that there was, in fact, a pretty significant dinosaur. And then they proceeded to do eight excavations over the next few years and dug out several quarries all near Lingwu City in the Ningxia region of northwest China. And they found between seven and ten individuals, which are basically a growth series from juvenile to adult. Oh, nice. And the largest one is about 17.5 meters or 57 feet long. And the full name that they gave it was Lingwu Long, 
Shengqi and Lingwulong is after the city Lingwu, obviously, because that's what they do in China, plus dragon. <laughs> and then Shengqi is amazing. And that's because everyone was really surprised to find a diplodocoid in Asia, which I'll get into a little bit more later. So if you do the full name, it's like amazing dragon from Lingwu. Yeah, that's what, a lot of that's what the headlines were. Yeah. I don't think it quite rewrites all of sauropod paleontology the way some of the titles suggest but it is definitely very significant so as you'd expect for a diplodocoid it has sort of a whip-like tail and it's really all tail when you look at the silhouette that they made it's probably more than half its body length is the tail so the opposite of a menchisaurus yeah <laughs> but it's kind of typical for a diplodocid or diplodocoid to have a lot of extra tail but usually diplodocoids also have a fair amount of neck on them but this one has a pretty short neck it's only about 20 percent of its body length about 3.5 meters or 11 feet which is short really for any sort of derived sauropod and then the remaining 30 percent is body so really it's got a longer body than it has neck which is pretty weird for a sauropod hmm. but it is an early sauropod so they didn't all have crazy long necks yet it was growing into it <laughs> i suppose <laughs> it's an awkward phase yeah <laughs> and then typical for diplodocoids it also has longer rear legs than front legs so that might indicate that it ate low plants because that seems to kind of angle its body sloping downward a little bit so then you know its neck if you extrapolate that out it basically ends up at the ground not like a brachiosaur or something where it looks like it's pointed pretty much up. Mm. So about what they found, they found two partial skulls, which is pretty awesome because sauropod skulls are often very hard to find. Mm -hmm. Usually because the body's so big, right? It gets separated easily. <laughs> I, or the neck. I guess oh, so. So there we go. The short neck could be in its favor here. <laughs> that could be. I think it also might have to do with the sort of fragile nature of the skull or something. I don't know. But yeah, we almost never find them. Fortunately, in this case, they found at least part of the skull. It still isn't really that much of the skull, but it is the top and back of the head, which is sort of the eyes back through the brain case to the squamosals, which we talked about last week, that sort of back top of the head. But sauropods have pretty small brain cases, so it's not really that much of the skull. If you talk about its whole head, it might only be about 10% of its head, pretty small bit way at the top and the back because they you know if you're familiar with the plot of kids they have that really long narrow sort of head right so all that teeth and nasal part out in the front they didn't find but they found some teeth they did find some teeth but not in the skull got it so they named that piece of skull the holotype meaning that's the part that really defines the species then for a paratype which is they said might be part of the holotype, but they're just being conservative, so it could be a different individual. They found several vertebrae, a shoulder blade, part of a leg, and then pieces of the hips. And then for just the smattering of other individuals all over the place, <laughs> they found 29 teeth and most of the rest of the body. And when you look at the skeletal drawing that they made for the paper, it's really just missing a few bones here and there. There's a couple bones from the feet, like small foot bones you know they've got all the legs and what would basically be an arm but the forelimbs and most of the ribs almost all the vertebrae and then obviously it's missing part of the skull unfortunately yeah but if you know it's a diplodocoid you have a pretty good guess on what that looks like i think so but this one is really early for a diplodocoid oh sure so i think they're kind of 
comfortable in their guess, but it's hard to say. It also helps that they found the teeth, and the teeth weren't anything surprising. So you can stick them in the right kind of head, they most likely. They were the likely. pencil shape? Yeah, the peg-like teeth, they call them. They looked like they might have been a tiny bit serrated, too, which is kind of interesting. Hmm. And I was just trying to guess from the skeletal drawing, but I'd say it's probably about 90% complete when you combine all of these, like, 7 to 10 individuals. You can make a composite. Oh, yeah. More complete than that ankylosaur. Yeah, I think it's more complete than even Patagotitan. Oh, yeah. Well, I mean, the ankylosaur only have one individual. If they found eight of those, maybe they could get such a nice one. <laughs> Nobody ever finds eight ankylosaurs. <laughs> But this sauropod, impressive. <laughs> yeah. And that uh, made me think, with the new Jurassic World park builder, the ankylosaurs like to be on their own. <laughs> mm-hmm. While I was reading this, I was thinking about that, like, oh, the sauropods are always herding together based on footprints and these bone beds, so you're always finding more of them, and you can do these better reconstructions. Mm-hmm. Not so with ankylosaurs. It's always just a solo one. Yeah. Although with Zool, there might be a second individual, maybe. Oh, that's true. So that would be cool. But anyway... I digress. Back to Ling Wulong. So as I said, it's a diplodocoid, which is a first for Asia and well, really East Asia, because it's hard to define where West Asia was back then. And I thought this was interesting because since Xing Shu was the lead author and he was also in the Hong Kong University dinosaur class, the online class that we talked about before, dinosaur ecosystems, in that class, he mentions a potential diplodocid from early on which is a different formation a couple hundred miles away in China, but that would have been late Cretaceous. So even if there is another diplodocid in East Asia, this one's by far much, much older. Mm -hmm. So it's still probably more significant. They also say that it's the first advanced sauropod, basically a neosauropod, and neosauropods are essentially what you get into after the prosauropods. The prosauropods are the ones which mostly have more of arms than front legs. So they're sort of in that transition between bipedal and quadrupedal. Mm -hmm. And then neosauropods are basically all the ones that are four big legs. And then they also tend to have less serrated teeth and a longer neck. That's sort of how you can define them or think of them. So pretty significant. That's what people think of when they think of sauropods, they don't think of those weird pro sauropods that still basically have hands. Yeah. <laughs> They're thinking of the ones with the long necks and the long tails and the big bodies and everything. So this is basically the first one of that category. And it's about 15 million years before the previous oldest, which is a long time. <laughs> and it puts it in the earliest part of the middle Jurassic. Some of the places called it the early Jurassic, but technically it looks like this dinosaur was around just after the early Jurassic ended, like within a couple hundred thousand years even, potentially. Sounds pretty amazing. It's pretty cool. And the reason that it's so significant is because we've previously thought that East Asia was sort of segregated from the rest of the world by this point in time, by the middle Jurassic. But given that now we know that there are diplodocoids that were in early East Asia here, as well as all over the rest of the world, it seems like they were probably still connected at the time. So now we've seen diplodocoids, if you're keeping track, in North America, South America, Africa, Europe, and East Asia. So most of the world, although we are still missing one big chunk of broken up Pangaea, which is East Gondwana, and that includes India, Madagascar, Antarctica and Australia. For now. Yeah. And those places don't have as good of dinosaur fossils as a lot of places. Although Madagascar is okay. But yeah, there aren't that many big finds from Australia and Antarctica. So 
it kind of limits what you can find. We've seen sauropod footprints from Australia, though. Mm-hmm. And they've also made some paleo art of it, which is a little bit hard to see how short its neck really is compared to the rest of its body because it's, it's sort of facing the artist. But you can really see just how long its tail was. So it's pretty neat. And they kind of made it a greenish color because the middle Jurassic was pretty swampy. <laughs> so to blend in. Yeah. So there you go. Now we know that East Asia was still connected to the rest of the world in the middle Jurassic, which is pretty cool. We also see that the earliest known diplodocoid 15 million years earlier than previously found. And on top of that, it's just a remarkably complete specimen when you combine all the individuals. So I'm excited. They didn't say anything about where you could see this fossil. The museum that they named that it's assigned to, I'd never heard of before and I couldn't find it with any Google searching. So I don't know if they put it on display This is why I need to learn Mandarin (laughs) so I could search things. Although I don't know if I would have access to the right websites being not in China. But yes, it would be really nice if they made a display of this guy since we have a pretty good idea of what exactly it looked like. Could be a cool statue. Yeah, for sure. Speaking of displays, we recently heard more about the new Deep Time exhibit that's going to debut on June 8, 2019 as part of the renovated Hall of Fossils at the National Museum of Natural History in Washington, D.C., A.K.A. the Smithsonian. Yes. We've definitely talked about this before, but, you know, more details. So the nation's T-Rex, which was found in Montana back in 1988, has been in Canada with Research Casting International for the last four years being prepared to be the center of this new exhibit. And now the T-Rex is back at the museum. So it's the display will show the T-Rex biting the neck frill of their Triceratops hatcher. (laughs) And the T-Rex has Hatcher pinned to the ground. The museum's curator, Matthew Carano, said that he wanted to conclude the narrative arc of Hatcher. Um, <laughs> I didn't realize Hatcher had been in multiple positions, but it makes sense. So if you're like 90 years old and you've been going to this museum the whole time, you'd you know see the end of Hatcher. Maybe there's pictures <laughs> of Hatcher in previous lives or something. Yeah. <laughs> so anyway... The idea is to show Hatcher and the T-Rex directly engaged. So Karino said, quote, there is a sense of balance and tension in this pose. The T-Rex's leg is pressing down on the rib cage of this Triceratops. Yeah. And if you look closely, the ribs are slightly cracked. In fact, the T-Rex is decapitating the Triceratops. You can see the head is being severed off the neck. There are lots of small details there for visitors who take the time to find them, end quote. Jeez. Yeah. That's pretty harsh. I know. Poor Hatcher. That's how it ends. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) So most of the T-Rex skeleton is real bone. That's really cool. And in the new exhibit, there will also be on display plants and animals from the same place in time to portray real ecosystems. So, you know, T-Rex and Triceratops were around from about 66 million years ago from Montana, North Dakota, Wyoming area. And the deep time exhibit will start at the beginning. So you start at 4.6 billion years ago, and then it ends in the future, (laughs) showing how choices that you make as a visitor today impacts the future. So it sounds like some kind of interactivity, and it's to show how all life is connected. And then, of course, there's going to be a lot of fossils you can touch. Nice. That is a pretty popular method for natural history museums. Start at the beginning of Earth, basically, and work your way up through the present. But the future, yeah, you don't often see that. I'm guessing it's going to be like a lesson in recycling and not polluting. Could be. Or also what we learn from the past about how the world changes. Yeah. So we're going to have to plan a trip to D.C., Garrett. For 2019? Yeah. Maybe they'll do SVP there in like 2020. Ooh, that'd be Take cool. advantage of it. That'd be nice. 
In other museum news, the Dickinson Dinosaur Museum in North Dakota has a new claws exhibit that shows the correlation between dinosaurs and modern birds. If you want to check that out now, not wait for the deep time exhibit. Also, thanks to Leonardo who shared this one with us. So Leonardo is a listener. He lives in Brazil and told us that the dinosaur room in Rio's National Museum recently reopened after a renovation. And you can see the largest dinosaur fossil mounted in Brazil of Maxicolosaurus topi, which is a sauropod that was described back in 2006. And the reopening is part of the bicentennial celebrations of the museum. Visitors can also see dinosaur and pterosaur fossils, including irritator. Oh, cool. Yeah. Yeah, I think we heard about that sauropod, but I didn't know that there was an irritator in there too. That's really pretty unique. I didn't realize it was a bicentennial celebration. (laughs) Yeah. That's pretty cool. Yeah. Starting next month in the month of August, actually only in the month of August, if you donate stuff to Goodwill, you can get free tickets for kids to Dinosaur World. At least one of the locations, the one in Florida, I couldn't tell if it also applied to their locations in Kentucky and Texas. Is that where Dinosaur World also is or something? Yeah, it's three locations. Gotcha. Which I also didn't realize, but (laughs) you can get a coupon for up to two free children's tickets, and you can go anytime from August through the end of October. And Dinosaur World's a theme park, an outdoor museum, and it has over 200 life-size dinosaurs. I'm actually... That's a lot. Yeah, I think we've seen some pictures of it from some of our listeners who have been and sent it to us. Cool. I think, I guess they give you children's tickets so that you have to buy the adult tickets. Yeah. That's how they get you. Yeah. (laughs) In the UK, there's a 16-year-old, William Wisson Burton, who built a replica Allosaurus out of scrap metal. And it's impressive, the pictures. He named it Big Al, which makes sense. (laughs) Underfoot's meant to look exactly like Big Al. And Mm. it took him 10 months. It's 27 feet long, 9 feet high, and weighs 926 pounds or 420 kilograms. He gave Big Al roller skates so that he could wheel it in and out of his workshop, too. (laughs) And this was all a project for school for part of his, what they called, extended project qualification, which I am not familiar enough with the school system in the UK to know what that means, really, but... So I wonder if it's kind of like a capstone project. That's kind of what it sounds like, like a final thing that you do for your studies. Oh, true. Yeah, that sounds plausible. I really don't know. I'm sure there are some of our UK listeners who can correct us if we're wrong. So William, he sketched out the ideas and he taught himself to weld to make this Allosaurus. Really cool. Yeah, that is impressive. That's the thing, like taking 10 months actually seems not that long if it's the first time you're doing metal work, mm-hmm. doing a life-size dinosaur like that. Oh yeah. And it's, he's not doing it full time, I'm mm-hmm. sure. Because he would have had to cut the metal, too. Mm-hmm. You can't just weld together random pieces and end up with an Allosaurus. <laughs> he also had to find the metal. Yeah, that's cool. There's a lot to it. <laughs> Another really awesome project is in Las Vegas. One dad created a dinosaur show for his daughter. So the dad is Lyle Corum. He's a stagehand at Paris and Bali's in Vegas. And he used lights, screens, and projectors to project Velociraptor, Triceratops, T-Rex, and a Brachiosaurus and its baby on the windows and doors to his backyard so that his eight-year-old daughter could enjoy them. And there's a video that shows her waving a ball in the air to play with the Brachiosaurus. And apparently it only took him one hour to set up, although he is a professional. Yeah, it kind of looked like they, he put like a projector screen in front of her windows and then put the projector in the yard so that it makes it look like there's something outside the window on like a TV screen kind of thing. Yeah, and you've got the T-Rex looking into the window <laughs> menacingly. That's when she runs away. Yeah, and that T-Rex head was like 10 times the size of a real T-Rex too, just to make it extra scary. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I think there's sound effects too. Oh, really? Jeez. 
So yeah, that would be scary. <laughs> Next, thanks to Eric who shared this one with us. So in Granbury, Texas, a real estate agent took photos of somebody in an inflatable T-Rex costume who was enjoying a house that they were selling. There's pictures of the T-Rex rummaging in the fridge, showing off in the kitchen, uh, taking a nap, mowing the grass. And apparently this listing went viral and then people from all over the country started calling and asking for the property. So the tactic worked. <laughs> It'll work once. Yeah. Now I got to come up with something new. The Velociraptor costume. Yes. Yeah, <laughs> also, we've talked about the Triceratops taco holder before, but apparently there's a Stegosaurus that holds nachos called the Nachosaurus. <laughs> you can buy it online along with the Takasaurus Rex. They're all similar style. Green. Hold your chips. <laughs> you know. I just use regular plates. Maybe that's too boring. I don't know. Maybe if you have kids. Oh, true. In media news, Robert Kirkman, who created the comic The Walking Dead, which is, you know, the show now, is now working on a new project called Super Dinosaur, which is, quote, the story of a genetically altered Tyrannosaurus in power armor that fights evil with the help of a 10-year-old super genius, end <laughs> quote. Which, without knowing anything else about this, sounds a lot like Moon Girl and Devil Dinosaur to me. But it does, yeah. Yeah. It's going to be an animated TV series and apparently started when artist Jason Howard, who co-created the comic, drew a sketch of a dinosaur in a superhero cape for his son. You know, it also sounds like that Runaways show a little bit with like oh. the psychic velociraptor. They're older, though. They're teenagers. Oh, OK. And, and this I is a T-Rex rather than a... A velociraptor. Yeah. Also, I don't think those teenagers are super geniuses. Oh, she had glasses. Isn't that the comic book version of being a genius? Just throw glasses on them and that makes them smarter than everyone around them? Oh, I don't know. I don't read enough comics. <laughs> okay. I don't know if that's accurate. Feels accurate. Mm. Next, thanks to Alex who messaged us about this. So when we talked about Jurassic World Fallen Kingdom, and I should mention that this gets into spoilers if you haven't seen the movie yet. But then if you did not like spoilers and haven't seen the movie yet, you probably haven't heard our episode talking about Jurassic World Fallen Kingdom. <laughs> anyway, we mentioned that we didn't know why the character Maisie was a clone. And Alex said, quote, I thought a possible explanation for the revelation that Maisie was a clone is a nod from the writers to previous Michael Crichton books. There were so many callback events that transpired in Crichton's original two Jurassic Park books. I'm under the impression that the writers were paying homage to the other Crichton novels like Next that discusses the possibility and ethical implications and dilemmas of genetic engineering and the possibility of cloning humans or transgenic animals, end quote. You'll have to check that book out. I just finished reading The Andromeda Strain, which is a different Michael Crichton book. Yeah, he's written so many. He has. But and a lot good. of them have been turned into movies and things. Mm -hmm. It's amazing how successful almost all of his books were. <laughs> yeah, but I didn't know about Next, so put that on the reading list, I guess. Yeah. Although I have a lot of dinosaur books to read first, too. Yeah. <laughs> the, it's hard to keep up with reading lists. It'll happen, eventually. So... Last, I want to give a shout out to Remy Rodriguez, who's possibly our youngest patron. He was recently featured in Folio, which is the brand journalism site of the University of Alberta. And this is such a great story. It's got some awesome photos of Remy who, looking at fossils and learning about dinosaurs at the University of Alberta's Paleontology Museum. And he looks really excited. Remy's five years old. For his birthday, he said that he wanted to go to Alberta, Canada, not Disney World. <laughs> And Remy's mom, Michelle, said that Remy's been interested in dinosaurs since he was three, and now he's the, the dinosaur kid of his school. And Michelle and her husband, Chris, have supported Remy's passion with dinosaur books, and Remy even took the University of Alberta's Dino 101 course not just once, 
but six times. <laughs> That's more than we've done it, Garrett. <laughs> yeah, we did it once. <laughs> yeah. And the whole family has now learned a lot about dinosaurs and geology. And we love hearing from Michelle about all the cool things that Remy is doing dinosaur-wise. They do a lot. <laughs> and I'm really glad that they got to spend Remy's birthday in Alberta. And it sounds like they were busy. In addition to visiting the University of Alberta and touring the Paleontology Museum and Dino Lab and talking to a paleontologist, they went to the TELUS World of Science to see the Dinosaurs on Earth exhibit, Dinosaur Provincial Park and the Royal Tyrrell Museum in Drumheller, and the Ellis Bird Farm near Red Deer. That counts as dinosaurs, I think. Yeah. Well, the <laughs> article is saying to see modern dinosaurs. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Which, if you're planning if you're ever planning a trip to alberta canada maybe you just follow remy's itinerary yeah especially if you're a dinosaur enthusiast mm -hmm. it's all the hot spots there's also the philip j curry museum if you're happen to be that far north in alberta but it's about an eight hour drive north of drumheller yeah from edmonton i think it's like four hours so it's a little more doable but it's still a little ways out there the Morrison Formation is by far the most famous Jurassic site in the United States, and I would argue in the world. Especially for sauropods. It does have some fantastic sauropods. They are spread across multiple states, and the Morrison Formation covers a good portion of western Colorado, and that's where this week's sponsor, the Colorado Northwestern Community College, or CNCC, comes in. Possibly the most famous sauropod from the Morrison Formation is Brachiosaurus, and the Morrison Formation also includes two other very famous dinosaurs, Allosaurus and Stegosaurus, and CNCC actually has an active dig site right now with all three of those amazing dinosaurs in one site. Nice. And even better, you can join them digging up those bones this summer. They're offering 16-day field programs where you can dig up bones with expert local paleontologists from the college. There's two scheduled digs. The first one's July 6th to July 20th. The second one is July 22nd to August 5th. But they are filling up, so be sure that you sign up now. You can go to cncc.edu slash dinodig to get all the details. Make sure you register online by May 31st, but do it even sooner because, again, those spots are going to be full soon. Again, that's cncc.edu slash dinodig. This episode is brought to you by Rosetta Stone, world-class language learning for the world's best moms. It's almost Mother's Day after all. We're going to continue our story from last time about our trip to the Taipei Zoo in Taiwan. Yeah, we definitely recommend the Taipei Zoo in Taiwan. They have a really cool dinosaur museum featuring all the highlights like Deinonychus, T-Rex, Triceratops. So we had a really great time. And then we decided to take the train back and we had some more aha moments with our language learning journey. Yeah, we had to read some maps to navigate home. And of course, a lot of the things are translated into English, but not everything is translated. So it helps a lot if you know some of the local language. It's also very nice to be able to understand announcements when you're on public transportation. Yes, because things can change sometimes. And as a bonus, we were on the train at the time when everyone was coming home from work. So it got to practice even more by listening in on conversations. Not that I was trying, but we were elbow to elbow with people. So it was hard not to hear what they were saying. Mm -hmm. <laughs> there wasn't anything too juicy. Mostly people talking about what they're going to have for dinner. But a lot of the early phrases I learned in Chinese had to do with food. So I felt pretty good about what I could understand. And Rosetta Stone can help you have your own proud moments. Yes, and the lessons are short so you can fit them into your busy schedule. And for a limited time, you can get all of Rosetta Stone's 25 language courses for just $179, which is a huge discount off of the usual $399. And you can do that at rosettastone.com dino. 
Again, that's rosettastone.com slash D-I-N-O. And now on to our dinosaur of the day, Ampelosaurus, which was a request from Murdoch Forever 99 and Marcos. So thanks. It was a titanosaur that lived in the Cretaceous in what is now France. And there was a bone bed found back in 1989 where they found ribs, vertebrae, limb bones, a tooth, and four osteoderms in different shapes and sizes. And these fossils were from several individuals. Sounds familiar. Yeah. <laughs> Except for the osteoderms. That's cool. Yeah. These osteoderms and armor were almost 10 to 11 inches or 25 to 28 centimeters long. And wow. They, yeah. They were plate, bulb, and spine shaped. Oh, cool. So it wasn't even all the same type of osteoderm. Mm-hmm. And actually similar to Liu Long, Ampelosaurus had a neck that was short in proportion to its body. Hmm. It's one of the best known dinosaurs from France and one of the most completely known titanosaurs from Europe. And it's estimated to be about 52 feet or 16 meters long and weigh about 17,600 pounds or 8,000 kilograms. So it's really similar to Ling Wu Long. Yeah. It's pretty close in size estimates. Yeah, that's true. Although I think diplodocoids tend to be a little bit more thin than titanosaurs. Yeah, titanosaurs are definitely bulkier, Mm -hmm. wider maybe. And they're a little bit less tail, a little bit more body to them. Yeah. <laughs> this just seem heftier or something. Yeah. So Ampelosaurus seems to have grown gradually. This is based on its bone histology. There's no signs of growth lines, though other titanosaurs also don't have these growth lines. It was named in 1995 by Jean Leloup, and you may have guessed it's a titanosaur, so it was herbivorous. Its inner ear had a more basal form compared to something like giraffe or titan, which means that that may have restricted its movements, including head turning. It, more than 500 bones have been found since 1989, including parts of a skull and jawbone, though the original description was only about a tooth and some vertebrae. Awesome. Yeah. But I'm guessing 500 bones is probably more like 500 bone pieces than 500 actual bones. Oh, could be. Although I guess it could be 500 bones because they have hundreds of bones just in one individual. Mm-hmm. So if you're, if you're just getting like the ribs and the <laughs> vertebrae, that adds up quickly. And all the osteoderms. Oh, yeah. Are they considering those bones? Then that would definitely add up, too. Yeah. So then Jean Leloup wrote a complete description in 2005 based on all the new finds. The type species is Ampelosaurus atticus, and the name means vineyard lizard. It's named after the Blanquette de Limoux vineyard, located near where Ampelosaurus was found. And the species name means Aude River. The site was Campagne-sur-Aude. Ampelosaurus is smaller than its ancestors, so in 2005, Corey and others said that they considered it to be a dwarf sauropod. Oh. <laughs> which is weird if it's also a titanosaur. But Yeah, and it's over 50 feet long. It's yeah. a dwarf. <laughs> yeah. Ampelosaurus lived in an ancient floodplain that had a lot of river channels, and other animals that lived at the same time and place included turtles, fish, crocodiles, birds, theropods, ankylosaurs, and the ornithopod rhabdodon. And our fun fact of the day goes back to our discussion of Lingwulong, when I mentioned that there was a holotype and a paratype. I ended up going down a rabbit hole of taxonomy that I figured I would share. What else is new? <laughs> so every species of dinosaur, and basically all animals and plants, is defined by a single individual called a holotype. So when there's a paper published on the very first finding of an animal or plant, or a dinosaur, they say, this is the holotype, and they do a, a very detailed description of that specific individual. And it's ideal if it's representative of 
kind of a normal one of that species and it doesn't have anything weird about it. But obviously with dinosaurs, you often only ever find one. So usually it's just the first one that they find, they'll name the holotype. Or in the case of Ling Wulong, it was the one that had the skull because that is often the most diagnostic or most unique part of the dinosaur. So literally every single skeleton or part of a skeleton that comes after the holotype has to be compared to that holotype to determine whether it is part of that dinosaur group, either the genus or the species, or if it can be named something new. And then later on, sometimes people debate, oh, that's not different enough. Maybe that was just a pathology that was wrong with that one individual. And then we get into this whole debate about which ones actually qualify as new species. What happens if the holotype is destroyed? So if the holotype is destroyed or lost, they can name a neotype. So for example, Spinosaurus was named in 1915, and there are still drawings of it, but the original fossils were destroyed during bombing in World War II. So there have been some people who have proposed assigning a neotype, but then there are others who think we should just stick with these drawings of the original, because if you change the holotype, it can change the interpretation of other dinosaurs. And there are other spinosauroids, which may not be considered their own unique dinosaur anymore if we define a new holotype, because it kind of redefines the whole animal. That's assuming these drawings are 100% accurate too, Yeah, right? that's why people would like to get a new neotype because then we could have 3D models. You could go there and do individual measurements, and, you know, things that weren't included in those original drawings. Even though they're good drawings, they're still drawings that were done on paper over 100 years ago. So there's a lot of detail that you can't see in them. So another thing that can happen is if a holotype is later found to be the same as a previously named holotype, then the new holotype isn't a holotype anymore, and it just becomes a junior synonym. So for example, there are people who are saying this is true with Nanotyrannus. And then if Nanotyrannus is found to just be a juvenile version of Tyrannosaurus, then Nanotyrannus will just be a junior synonym of Tyrannosaurus. But it's important to define it as a junior synonym, so that in the future when you look up Nanotyrannus, all the paperwork and all the studies that have been done on Nanotyrannus now just apply to Tyrannosaurus and you don't lose all this research. And they do that because the older name always gets precedent, basically regardless of how great the new name might have been. <laughs> but in this case, I think it's a good thing because it would be a shame if we lost T-Rex. And the same thing applies too with Triceratops and Taurosaurus. If we decide that Taurosaurus is an adult version of Triceratops, then Triceratops being named first will be the original name and still the holotype name, and Taurosaurus will just become a junior synonym for the adult version of Triceratops. There's a couple other weird things that can happen. Occasionally, when they find the holotype, they also describe extra material along with it, like they did with Lingwulong, and then they call that a paratype. You can't add paratype later. If you describe extra fossils later, that's just called a referred specimen. But if you do it at the time of naming the holotype, then it's called a paratype. So it can be useful in sort of comparing, but technically it's not officially used for comparisons. And then there are lots of other types that aren't commonly used in paleontology, so I'm not going to bore everybody with those details. <laughs> but you looked them up? Yeah, there's a lot of them, because it's, when you have living animals, there are weird things you can do, like you could release the animal back into the wild after you take DNA samples from it or something, and then that might not be as good of a type specimen, and there's other things that you can do. Sometimes if you have different genders, you can have one of those as a paratype, and they have a special name for that. But most of this stuff doesn't apply when you're just finding one bone 
or one skeleton out of the ground. Right. And you can't tell the gender. Yeah, exactly. Can't tell the gender. Can't tell the color. Definitely can't release it back into the wild. (laughs) (laughs) Or you shouldn't, you know, keep that in the museum, please. (laughs) Oh, yeah. And that wraps up this episode of I Know Dino. Thanks for listening. Don't forget to subscribe so you don't miss out on any new episodes. And check out our page at patreon.com slash inodino for perks and whatnots. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Thanks for listening. And until next time. find cars like these on auto trader new cars used cars electric cars maybe even flying cars okay no flying cars but as soon as they get invented they'll be on auto trader just you wait auto trader